it's Simon, and welcome to episode 25 of Turning the Tables, the silver anniversary of our relationship, if you like. 25 episodes may not sound like a lot, but it was the first milestone I set when I started this podcast. So I wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you to all you, my listeners and guests who have come on the journey with me so far. It means a lot. For this episode, we have a special guest. Lucy Hone is a co-director of the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience, a published academic researcher and best-selling author. Her TED Talk on the three secrets of resilient people have been watched by nearly three million people. Lucy has experienced firsthand of what it's like to face what is the most heart-wrenching adversity, when tragically her 12-year-old daughter, Abby, was killed in a car accident. Yeah, I mean, you know, our world was smashed to smithereens is a, is a, yeah, is, and that is exactly, I mean, now that I know all the research about bereavement too, that's exactly what happens when you lose somebody really significant, it smashes your world apart. I'm Simon Ratcliffe, and this is Turning the Tables, a podcast dedicated to the candid, powerful stories of people who have turned around adversity in their personal or business lives to find new purpose and meaning. Each episode, my guests share their insight about how to turn adversity into advantage. Lucy Hone's story is a powerful weaving of the science of resilience and the practical experience of facing the most challenging form of grief, the loss of a child, something all of us as parents can only begin to imagine. Despite this very human tragedy, Lucy continues to dedicate her career to groundbreaking work on resilience and to helping others to build their resilience muscles. In our discussion, we talk about the three strategies that we can use to build resilience in our own lives. The work the Institute is doing in helping build resilience in communities, in the education of children and even in government policy. And Lucy shares her own very personal insights and advice to any of us facing adversity in our lives based on her own experience and research science. We begin our conversation with Lucy talking about how her career and interest in resilience developed. So I do have a pretty unique and strange um, relationship and understanding, I guess, of this word resilience, because unlike um, most people, I have done my training. I trained at the University of Pennsylvania. Back in 2009, I commuted between New Zealand and um, Philadelphia to do my master's in resilience psychology and well-being science. And I went there because the University of Pennsylvania is absolutely 
the academic home of resilience research. At the time, they had the Penn Resilience Program for schools, and they just picked up the contract to train all 1.1 million American soldiers to be as mentally fit as they have been traditionally physically fit. So um, it was an amazing place to have my training. And then I had come back to my adopted hometown of Christchurch, New Zealand, and I just started on my doctoral research, my own PhD studies. And when the Christchurch earthquakes hit and we had significant earthquakes, I'm, I'm a Londoner, I'm born and bred. And so we don't know much about earthquakes, do we, when you're brought up in London? No, I didn't and, realise um, you were from London. Yeah, yeah. I'm originally Where were you born? Born in Winchmore Hill. I was born in Enfield, actually. Um, oh, goodness me. Well, I'm in Balham, yeah. so there we are. There you go. So, um, yeah, so um, Londoner born and bred, didn't know much about earthquakes. Um, And what happens, for those who don't know, is you don't just get one earthquake. And, um, you know, I think that is what people think, is you get one big earthquake, which we did, which was devastating, and 195 people died. And it, um, we pretty much lost. We were shut out of our um, central city, the actual sort of town bit of Christchurch, for 18 months afterwards, I mean, it, you know, completely rocked our worlds. Um, everybody's houses had to be rebuilt. But what happens also is you have subsequent really big aftershocks. So it's just a terrifying time to live. And that kind of went on for a couple of years. <laughs> and a couple of years of anxiety and stress is mm. a long time. So that was my first moment of really putting all of my resilience training to the test. What had set you on the path of, of the sort of resilience training? What, what, what had led you down that way? Um, I don't know if you've seen the Steve Jobs um, connecting the dots. Yes. Um, yeah, so when I look back, which is what he always says, you know, you can't connect the dots looking forward, but when you look back, you can see how your path has uh, kind of culminated in where you are today. And I can see that in that... Um, not so much my childhood or anything, but the first piece I ever wrote as a journalist was for Harpers and Queen in London. And it was about the dangers of paranoid parenting, of molly coddling our children. And so it's interesting because I was a journalist for 20 years um, internationally. And always what I wrote about, looking back on it, was stories of how people either adapted or how to live a meaningful, you know, contributing, uh, purposeful, engaged life, really. So I did all sorts of mm. interviews with um, a black belt granny, I seem to remember. <laughs> um, and um, I wrote about affluenza. And so I was all, I've always been interested in what makes people thrive. So, yes. and the reason I went to Pennsylvania to study in, I applied in 2008 and again, I can sense this more retrospectively than I could at the time, was it came out of the on the back of the global financial crisis when I do distinctly remember one day turning on the um, TV and or the radio news was all about, you know, how the economy needed to be resilient. And I remember reading one of the news weeklies and they were all saying, you know, we all need to be resilient as a nation. And I remember thinking, does anyone know what this word means? And mm. that's what um, I started researching an article for our kind of best monthly news pay, uh, magazine here. And that was what then put me in touch with the University of Pennsylvania. That's how I discovered their master's, executive master's 
program. It's a great program. Um, and that's how that curiosity and interest became very much systematic, formal study and has ended up being, you know, I'm steeped in um, yes. yeah, what I do now. I mean, were there uh, earlier on in your in your career in your life? Were there any any particular events that sort of cemented that that mission? Yeah, it's a, a, not particularly. I mean, I, I I was listening to one of your podcasts the other day, and and of course it is interesting, isn't it? How our um, earlier lives breed the people um, that we become, and um, we had a bit of you know family crappy moments. Um, but no, but nothing more. You know, literally the separating parents when I was thirteen. Yeah, there was a bit of a rocky time around when I was twenty one. My sister's best friend died just before she got married, and um, but but very much I would say pretty ordinary adversity. And we have, as a family, continued to have. You know, no. we're not short of challenges, but but I don't think we're exceptional. You know, when my so my mum died when I was sixty three. Um, my sister's eldest, so fourth child, not eldest at all. She has five. Her fourth was born with Down syndrome. And I got that phone call in the middle of the night when we were still in, living in London. Um, you know, that seemed yes. like a tragedy at the time. I'm now ashamed that we never thought that because he's, um, he's a 20, nearly 23 year old rocking force in my life nowadays. And dear man is, um, there's, I have no, um, no pity or <laughs> regrets about him. He's just awesome. And my brother, my dear brother, um, is in a home with dementia and probably got that. You know, I don't know. Sometime in his late forties, early fifties, yes, which is yes. exceptional and tragic for family. So, um, yeah. So, um, oh yeah. And then I haven't quite no, finished the story no. about our own tragedy, have I? So yeah, when I was doing that work in the Christchurch earthquake, so I put my PhD on hold and um, set about working with my local community to translate the best of science to help them us get back on our feet in that post-quake period. So I did lots of um, what we call real-time resilience um, strategies, you know, lots of um, presenting and working with all sorts of government bodies and all sorts of organisations and community groups then. And I really did think mm. that was my calling. And sadly, as I've just alluded to, I was wrong because we hit personal family tragedy in 2014 on a public holiday weekend, a bank holiday weekend, as you would call it, we travelled south to the most beautiful part of New Zealand to go mountain biking with three other fam two other families. And on the way down, on the way down, my dear twelve-year-old daughter Abby hopped in the car at the last minute with her best friend Ella, who was also twelve, and Ella's mum Sally, who was a really dear friend of mine, um, also by chance British. And on the way down, somebody went straight through a stop sign at 100 kilometres an hour and smashed into them um, and mm. killed all three of them instantly. Yeah, I mean, you know, our world was yes. smashed to smithereens. Is a is a, yeah, is, and that is exactly. I mean, now that I know all the research about bereavement too, that's exactly what happens when you lose somebody really significant. It yeah, smashes yeah. your world apart. Call it, call it your life schema mm. in psychology. Um, and the process of grieving and mourning is about putting that world back together. And um, relearning to live in the world is one of my favourite quotes from 
um, Tom Attig, one of the main researchers in the field. So, yeah, it, um, it's yeah. been a, well, a bloody process, sorry that's for your sure. loss and, and uh, uh, there is no other words than, uh, than tragic and mm. you know, the loss of children, of course, is, is, is possibly, well, this is something that Julia Samuel talked about and her podcast is, is probably the most fundamental adversity you could ever, ever experience. Yeah, I mean, actually, and within bereavement, it is, it is acknowledged as the yeah. Um, yeah. yeah the worst type of loss. This research backs that up, and oddly, just to throw that extra layers in, the people who are absolutely most at risk are the people who have children who are still living at home, um, and mothers. So yes. I tick all of those boxes. So I knew it was a formidable mountain to climb. Um, that's for sure, but possible, and actually, really. You know, that, Simon, that is one of the things that the research shows that I would be so um, keen to emphasise for your listeners is that that actually only 10% of people who are grieving really need clinical or medical intervention because humans are incredibly resilient. You know, we have this extraordinary inner capacity that you will know um, and that so many of your podcast guests have reflected and, and that that capacity goes so beyond what we think we can cope with. It is I think quite that's, a, that's an absolutely fascinating um, point. And I, I wonder whether in society we've kind of taken away some of that inherent resilience. You know, my parents... Um, many parents of, of people of my generation grew up during the war. I mean, they had incredible resilience. They had to. They had to live with bombs destroying their homes and and losing loved ones and, and, and much, much more. And I, I just wonder, we've lived, you know, in relative peacetime um, for a long time since then. And I just wonder whether our society has sort of lost that skill a little bit? So what is interesting is that um, the literature kind of reads two pictures, gives us two pictures here. So the first really important thing to understand is that the research firmly backs up how resilient people are when it comes to dealing with, we call them potentially traumatic events, PTEs. And the literature is really clear that most people do demonstrate their capacity for resilience despite a wide variety of potentially traumatic events. I mean, the, the stats are incredible, whether it is cancer, um, whether it is um, a tsunami, hurricane, um, a terrorist attack. Really, most people get through um, using very ordinary processes like leaning on their friends. Um, so the literature is clear that we are still hardwired for resilience and we do have this inner capacity. You know, it's not a fixed trait. It's not something that you have or you don't have. It is a capacity. It's a whole combination of ways of thinking and acting that come together to help you navigate tough times. Having said that, what you are alluding to and I absolutely support and agree with is we have monumentally tragic levels of mental distress in our society 
now. I was just looking at our youth mental health report yesterday that was only released last week, and it was an update from 2012. And the statistics are just frightening. You know, um, really, we've we've got 23% of our of our young people have experienced depression in or symptoms of depression in the last year, and 13% of our secondary school students have attempted suicide. That's that's a that's a shocking statistic, isn't it? Yeah, it's a shocking statistic. So, you know, the, so there are there is definitely um, an inability to cope. And yet, at the same time, the literature says says that we are able to cope. And I think one of the things that you said there really interests me, that you said you were talking about the war generation and how they had no choice and they had so much tragedy um, and, you know, trials and tribulations thrown at them that they really didn't have a choice. And I think with us, personally, I felt I didn't have a choice because when the adversity is so huge you kind of just got to get on and grind your way through it. And I think we're talking two different things. So we're talking about resilience to an adversity. We can do that. What people are finding harder to cope with is living everyday lives. And that's the depression and anxiety that is creeping in. Yeah, which, as you're saying, I think is not is not really adversity. It, it is a set of circumstances which people find hard to deal with as opposed to there's there's yeah. a specific yeah. adversity, yeah. I think she quite rightly say. You don't have to answer this question, but how did you deal with that horrendous loss? No, I'm very happy to answer that question because, I mean, <laughs> that's what I've written my book about and that's um, what so much of our work was about. I Firstly, I felt lucky in that I'd had that training. So I did have at my fingertips a whole load of evidence-based ways of thinking and acting that I had read the literature that showed that these things were likely to help people who had helped other people navigate tough times. And actually, I just want to make an important point here that the difference between self-help my story, one person's story or any of your podcast interviewees' stories and science is that science has been tested on thousands of people and the studies have been replicated over time and with different audiences. So you can listen, you know, you can listen to me and I might have a good idea and I might say that actually when you're grieving, experiencing finding positive emotions is really, really important because you have this wave of negative emotions. And I might say that as Lucy Hone, (laughs) but if I say that as Dr. Lucy Hone, who's read all the literature, what I'm also saying is the literature is really clear here that in tough times when you're facing adversity, that we have a lot of studies that show that for all sorts of diverse people and large samples, really experiencing positive emotions makes a difference. So it's it's important distinction, isn't it, knowing that um, it's great to know that yes. science helps. So I had all these scientific strategies and tools and I lent into them and I'm a writer. Um, so I wrote and, um, you know, I just went through an exploratory kind of process to see if any mm. of that training that I'd had in America would actually help me. And I, in truth, I had my doubts, but I can, 
it's been really interesting for me professionally this experience because it really makes me even more passionate than I was at the beginning, you know, back in 2009 when I went to study this material. I'm so, now so passionate that everybody needs to have these tools to understand the ways of thinking and acting that might help them navigate tough times and the ways of thinking and acting yes. that might harm them. Um, and we all need to have that in our heads. And if you, as Dr. Denise Quillen, who's my um, co-director at the Institute, would say, you know, if you if you practice these things in in good times, you know, if you work on your well-being in your in your happier, better moments, you're better equipped. Then the strategies come e more easily to you when tough times come. Uh, I get that. I get that. But as a human being. I'm thinking that must be incredibly hard to, outside of when you're doing your job and everything, you know, and those private family moments, it must be really difficult. It's not about private family moments. It's about being being real, not perfect, is our mantra. It's about living it all and walking through the world, <laughs> experiencing yes. whatever it throws at you at that moment. So, so for me, I went back to work six weeks. Yeah. So for six weeks, we did nothing. And, uh, you know, and, and I let me not minimise it in any way. Um, it was bloody awful. Uh, and it's literally like I felt like someone had taken a wrecking ball to my life. That was kind of the image I had, you know, of just smashing my life. And I did say to um, a friend and one of Abby's teachers at one point, you know, I no longer know who I am. I, I literally, it lo you lose your identity completely. And she said to me, well, you're still the mother of three children. And um, that's, you know, what's important. And actually, she was one of my earliest clues to survival that that I am still the mother of three children. And indeed, the, the literature on bereavement now about, I think Julia talked about the continuing bonds theory. You don't have to put away all the photos nowadays. You don't have to pretend that no. that child didn't exist, you know. So we talk about her all the time. She's she's in our lives. Um, she, I do know she's dead. I do know that she's not here. I'm not deluded. Um, we So we carried on. We both agreed, my husband and I, to carry on as best we could with the caveat that when we wanted or needed to go to bed, lie on the floor, scream, cry. Yeah. We would do all those things, you know, that we wouldn't hide it yes. away in private family moments. And grief hijacks you. It doesn't wait for the previous, from the private family moment, you know. It it gets you when you're in the supermarket and you see her bag yes. of crisps on the shelf there or, you know, it's so many moments. So for a long time, you know, I just cried a lot. But I was really open about that. And we live in a very supportive community, a family-driven community. So losing three of our, you know, two children and a mother from a community, a small seaside community was, you know, it rocked us all. And that's another element of resilience is there is no such thing as personal resilience. You know, we are. it is nested like those Russian dolls. It is nested in the, the communities and the organisations, the workplaces, the clubs you belong to, all of those aspects of your life, um, your culture, your identity. Um, so we were really supported. Yes, I'm just reflecting that what you're describing is a sort of, is a, is a holistic 
form of res resilience in a way. Yeah, we and we would call this the ecological model, <laughs> if you want to get technical. Um, and that is, yeah, and that's taking a whole systems-based approach. So looking at looking at me, um, and this is, so we are just about to launch our um, new program, Coping With Loss, which is designed for helping and health professionals to help those that they are helping cope with all kinds of different loss. And, and so much of that is about looking at the person there. It advocates that you look at the person that you are trying to help and look at their internal resources, which are all those ways of thinking and acting that I referred to earlier. Um, and we can go into more detail if we have time. But then there's also the external resources, you know, who in the community, in the family, um, can help them, who at work, how can work help them, and how can our health and education policy help them? Um, how can the community help them? In So I've done quite a lot of community resilience work, and one of the um, key elements to have communities that are resilient is that you need bumping spaces where people can meet and continue diverse connections with the community, and we have those. So... So I'm, you know, I'm lucky in that, really, truly fortunate in that I live in a very supportive community um, and not everyone does. And that does make, that's a risk factor for resilience. Yes. That makes life tougher. Yes, I'm sure that's true. In your, in your talk, in your TED talk, you, you talked about the three strategies to build resilience. And I, I, I sensed you, you've referred to them in, in some of the ways you talked about how you dealt with it, but it'd be really interesting to hear, again, the listeners, for, for them to hear what those strategies are. That basically, in the TED Talk, I say that um, these were the strategies that I had been trained in and that I fell back on in those very early weeks and months after Abby died. Um, and the first is around Kristin Neff's work around self-compassion, and that is that struggle is part of life. Suffering, as much as we don't enjoy it, is normal, and it's really important for us all in our lives now to be um, accepting that suffering is normal, to understand that shit happens, whether we like it or not. And the point is that two things. One, it stops you from feeling discriminated against at the time when shit does happen. But the other is it helps you be a bit kinder to yourself when things go wrong. So you don't think, oh, you know, that's just typical of me. I always do everything wrong. You just think, okay, this is a this is a crappy moment. Um, this is a moment of suffering. Everybody struggles and suffers. I am completely normal here. I need to be kind to myself right now. You know, what can I do to be kind to myself right now? And in those early days and weeks and months for us, that for me was quite often, I need to go to bed or I need to leave, leave the office, go for a walk. I need to stop talking to this person who's asking me all <laughs> stupid questions. It's really powerful to live and communicate that message that struggle and suffering sadly is normal. We battle in our work perfectionism. Perfectionism is just toxic and so bad for your psychological health. So we're always, as I said at the Institute, our um, mantra is we're real, not perfect. That's number one. Um, and then number two is about, uh, from the research, we know that resilient people are really somehow good at being able to select where they focus their attention. And what I mean by that is that 
they're good at focusing on the things that they can change all of their energies and attention on those things and somehow accepting the things that they can't. So for me, you know, that's knowing that, that I had a choice and that if I could be more realistic and really um, focus on what I could change, what I could do, that was going to help me. So I focused my attention on what I could still had with our two beautiful Abby's brothers, two beautiful sons. I wanted to really be there for them. And I had this kind of voice in my head that kept saying to me, you know, choose life, not death. Don't lose what you have, our gorgeous boys, to what you have lost. You know, don't become so obsessed by her. You know, they need they need you too. So um, it's kind of a benefit finding, we would call it. But you know, um, and, and I guess they must must be traumatized in the, in their own ways about what's happened. Oh boy, yeah, yeah. I mean, so there there was they, they've been absolutely fine because they've just got on and coped with yeah. it, and and they were fifteen and sixteen. I mean, in the, I, don't, I truly don't think you could have worse years mm-hmm. for boys to be to lose their little sister and yeah and but you know even that knowing the but taking a researcher's perspective I was so lucky because I went and hunted down the research because at the beginning I'd say to them do you want to see a counsellor or do you want to um you know you have to talk to someone you can't just ignore it because there's, there's such a thing called delayed grief it will come back and bite you and then I went and looked at the research and found that there is no such a thing as delayed grief <laughs> that is one of the absolute myths of bereavement psychology and jeepers there are quite a few of them and and it was so interesting that yeah actually it doesn't come back to bite you most lots of people just do cope without showing huge emotions and for most people that is okay you know the, it's not they're not known for their emotional years, are they? For boys being no. sixteen. No. <laughs> and now they do a bit more. You know, they're twenty-two and twenty and now they do. So that strategy too about being really selective and determined about where you're focusing your attention. So it would also prevent me from doing the what if we hadn't put her in the Yes. Yeah. That day. Which leads me on to the the way you check in on that is to ask yourself, is the way I'm thinking or acting, helping or harming me. And that's strategy three. And really, this has got to be the best strategy of all time for resilience. Um, it comes from cognitive behavioral therapy. And um, boy, is it powerful. It really, you know, and so I do this all the time. I'll think about the way I'm using my phone at the dinner table. Is it helping or harming my relationship? The way I'm looking at you know, the way all those news media prompts that come into our phones at this terrible time, alerting us to all the bad in the world, is that helping or harming you? Pretty powerful question. Yes, very, very, very helpful. Uh, i just pick up on a couple of things you, you said. I, I think wholeheartedly support the whole point, which is really why I've done this podcast about that sorrow, tragedy, adversity are part of life. That is typical for the vast majority of people. And and so being able to sort of, if it's at all possible, to normalise that and recognise that 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 is part of life is very important. And I think the second thing you said that was really interesting was this point about your own expectations of yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of people do struggle with expectations being born in a parent's generation of you've got to get on with it just got to 
get on with it. Well, in one sense, that's correct. But if that means totally suppressing everything and feeling bad in yourself about it, probably not very helpful, is it? No, well, complex. Um, I mean, I think there's a real disconnect nowadays between expectations and reality. Yeah. And an impatience as well. I mean, on, it's so interesting when you start looking into the psychology of human potential, you know, how do we grow young people who are healthy, happy, connected, understand what matters to themselves, engaged. Um, and that's very much, we do a lot of work in education because education, particularly here in the Southern Hemisphere, has understood that teaching students Pythagoras isn't going to necessarily equip them that well for life. So yeah. <laughs> no. boy, there are limitations around the curriculum. So, so we work with um, thousands, you know, thousands of um, educators to help look at this question of how do, what does, what does a school of today that really is built that's fit for purpose, how can it help our young people grow to be resilient um and i think there is you know so much difference between expectation and reality and as parents it's our job to let them suffer struggle do things wrong and to let them take their time and find their own way it's not fun but it is our job and and that if i'm right in thinking that's very much the the mission of of the institute isn't in your work is actually putting resilience and the need for resilience into a, a public health context. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, our mission is exactly that. So it's population wellbeing promotion and we would, wellbeing and resilience promotion. Um, what does that look like? And so if you really do want to make a shift in the mental health landscape at a mass market level, which is what we mean by population level, then what does that look like? What do you have to do? Well, the first thing you need to do is measure population wellbeing, which is what my PhD ended up being about. And for instance, in New Zealand, only 24% of us um, of working adults are psychologically flourishing. So that's and that's not that's pretty standard, but that's worrying because unless you are psychologically flourishing, then you're more likely to really struggle with mental distress. Yes. Do you think there's an equation where adversity can lead to a better, more fulfilled life? Um, so actually, the science on that shows that you want a, a median amount of adversity. You want you don't experiencing no adversity. Yeah, means that you don't really develop the the resources and the strategies that help you get through. Um, and too much layer upon layer, which certainly living in this city, Christchurch, you might remember we. Not only did we have the earthquakes in 2011 to 2013, but then we then had that mass shooting at the mosque. Oh, yes. March 15th last year. Um, and so I, so this is actually an interesting example for our city too much. Having said that, when we all went into lockdown for um, COVID, honestly, as a community, we were like, <laughs> we've got this. <laughs> and and everyone from lawyers... A trifle. Yeah, it was a trifle. Everyone was just like, we can do this because we have learned to be flexible. And so many companies who we work with as clients just said, oh, honestly, compared to our, our colleagues in Auckland, you know, law firms would say to us, it's fine. We've got everything online. We don't have to go into the city. We weren't in our old building for two years. You know, we've got this. 
Well, that's a perfect um, illustration of what you've just yeah. said, doesn't it? About a built-in resilience. Yeah. Systems um, resilience, yeah, as well. Mm. Yeah, systems yeah. resilience. Very yeah. interesting. Very it interesting. is a fascinating topic, and as you can tell, I could talk all day. <laughs> so what, I mean, on a personal level, what's your goal? Mm. What's your mission? Interesting, isn't it? So what is my mission now? I think our mission, uh, the world has changed because of COVID in that, Definitely a far greater proportion of people now understand the need for to understand well-being and resilience. Um, so it has definitely changed that landscape. For us, that means our mission is to just continue to translate the best of science in a lot of different formats so that we can help, we can meet people where they're at, which is why we do everything from consumer resilient grieving book and TED Talk to the Educator's Guide to Whole School Wellbeing, which is explicitly for wellbeing teams who are trying to make that change in schools, to professional development online, um, our online courses. I mean, that's a classic example of we just try and kind of plug the gaps. And so the health professionals who are dealing, who dealt with me and are dealing with people who are bereaved, still tell them about the five stages of grief. And there is no scientific evidence that people go through five stages of grief. The latest um, online course that I've just created and I'm almost finished is, is very much about bringing the best of the new science to help those health practitioners who have been miseducated and say, actually, this is what we know about about bereavement. You know, that there is no delayed grief. There aren't five stages. In fact, we oscillate between coping with our grief and um, avoiding our grief. So that's what I like doing, really, is plugging those gaps, um, helping people in different formats, because we all learn and look for information in different ways. So we work hard to do that, too. Um, and what about you on a personal level? Um, on a personal level, um, I only have one ambition, and that is to keep my family together. <laughs> and that's a very, very good one, isn't it? Yeah, and that was my ambition from the day she died. And um, and that's getting easier as the boys get older. And I can start to see and sense that we're in a bit of a new dawn now where they, yes. you know, they are starting to think and talk about her and... Um, I'm I'm curious to see how her death will impact them, all of us, for the rest of our lives. You know, it doesn't go away. So, no, no, I can imagine that. What? Maybe this is a difficult, difficult question, but what has all the, all of this adversity taught you? <laughs> it's funny. It's not a difficult question because the first time I wrote resilient grieving for the New Zealand market, when it was just for the, this market, we called it. What um, what is oh, what Abby taught us? It was called, and so I've always known that her death was a a teaching. You know, she was her whole life. She her being here and then not being here has taught us so much. Um, so it has taught me, and it's been interesting going through COVID again. Is it really made me think? Oh yeah, I've taken those lessons on board. There isn't anything I would change. That, you know, lots of people talk about what COVID has taught them. And I think, that, yeah, we've been there, done that. And um, and it's that um, my family are everything. And my, 
you know, friends and relationships are everything and that life is tough and don't expect it to be perfect. And, um, no. and to take a, you know, in a scientific perspective, we take an appreciative inquiry to life. So, you know, we try and always see what could, what is possible, what could we do um, in a kind of curious way. And um, um, I've learned that, you know, work is um, fulfilling and meaningful, but not everything. <laughs> and um, so, and to be kind to myself, but so, you know, to do what you can and get to the end of the day and go, ha, that's what I achieved today. It wasn't what I was hoping for, yes. but that's okay. That's yes. good enough. It's good good enough, yes. Yeah, I think they're very wise, wise words. What do you say to other people, Any anybody who's listening that's, that's having to deal with adversity, what would you say to them? Um, there is no right way. Find your way and be kind to yourself. You know, know it is a process, but also have hope know that we as humans are hardwired to cope and we have this extraordinary capacity to cope with terrible things. Lean on your friends, family, community, ask people for help. It's not easy. I know it's not easy, but um, tell them what you need, you know, really tell them when you do want to be hugged, when you don't want to be hugged and go easy on yourself. You know, it's not such a, um, complicated recipe, really. Do, do you t- uh, taking out broader again as we draw to a close? Are you able to look at you know what you're achieving with the work you're doing through the institute and 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 what's happening across the world? Are you able to see the sort of seeds of positive change? I, I know I definitely am, I and mean, I feel grateful that. For some reason, Denise and I had the foresight to get into this work a decade ago. So I feel really grateful for that in that we have a decade of thinking about this and trying to work out the best ways forward. But the world is catching up and that's great. So at the beginning, it was really hard work. You know, people would roll their eyes when we turn up and you think, oh, the bloody well-being woman's here again. (laughs) It's like the sustainability director we used to used to. Yes, just like that. I'd never thought about that. Poor sustainability <laughs> yeah. directors. I guess much kinder to them in the future. Um, so yeah, it is, um, and all that Brene Brown work around you know vulnerability, or just that having the courage to be in the arena, and it, it has been tough being the people in the arena doing the hard work. Um, but having said that everyone's in the arena now and I do feel hope and I do when I work with young people see their passion for helping each other well thank you ever so much for taking the time for this it's been really insightful and and thank you so much for sharing obviously a very very tough personal story in all this uh thank you um Simon I really appreciate it and it's great having um platforms such as yours to get the word out there Lucy's story is pretty unique. An expert in resilience who has had to face the ultimate tragedy and test of resilience in her own life. For me, Lucy's story brings home the importance of teaching the skills of resilience, not just to us as adults, but perhaps most importantly, to our children. It is only when we face adversity that we have to call on the skills to be able to manage, deal with and move on from those events. Surely those are skills that we need to have embedded from an early age 
to help us move through the inevitable events that will take place during our life. As has been said many times on this podcast before, adversity is a fact of life. It's our ability to cope and come through that adversity that determines the quality and happiness of our lives. Until next time, stay safe. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning the Tables. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and be sure to listen out for the next episode where I again will be exploring with my guests how they turned adversity into advantage. See you next time. Go safely.